and, and making a picture that way. When you're looking at just the projection on the screen, it can be difficult to tell which is which, or even, even how many slides are being used. Uh, you might not know. Uh, and so as we're going through this, I just want to remind everyone that I am not the Bible. Um, what I say is not scripture. Uh, I am going to give you my best guess at what's going on as we work our way through this sort of lengthy prophetic passage. Um, and it's not just a guess out of nowhere, it's, it's been developed with research and, and prayer and reading notes of people who are much smarter than I am. So it's, it's not just a, a blind guess, it's an educated guess, but uh, it's still just my best guess. So here we go. Normally I read through the whole passage that we're working with. I'm not going to do that this morning. Um, I am going to read through it broken up with interjections uh, as, I, as we try and sort of work through it bit by bit by bit. Uh, and you'll, you'll sort of see why, because it's, it's muddled. Uh, it's kind of difficult to, to keep track of what's going on throughout the whole thing otherwise. So we've got the passage starting out the beginning of chapter 5, uh, Micah sort of speaking to his own present time, uh, with Judah being invaded by Assyria, or about to be invaded by Assyria, uh, and also hinting at a future time when Jerusalem would fall into exile. Uh, in the first few verses, the, the imagery of, of Israel's ruler being struck with an instrument that typically would, would signify rulership uh, is an image of embarrassment. Uh, of, of having one's power stripped from them, uh, as was the case when Israel and then Judah were taken into exile. And there's also parallels there with, with Jesus being struck during his trial. So there we go, there's some of that layered prophecy right there. So here we go, uh, starting with verse 1. Marshal your troops, city of troops. Now it can also be translated, slash yourself as a mourning daughter surrounded by troops. That's another way to translate that, that uh, first sentence. For a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. So there's that first bit. And then after that, we've, we've, we're sort of returning, uh, responding to that uh, with, with the promise of a later coming Messiah. And, and Micah turns his attention directly to the coming Messiah. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. There it is. Uh, we move from there into resuming the sort of pregnancy imagery that Mike was using in chapter 4, uh, speaking to Israel and to Judah uh, as in the pain of labor at the prospect of exile. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. And she who is in labor was being described, that was a way that they were describing uh, Jerusalem in particular in the previous chapter. Uh, Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor, Jerusalem, bears a son. And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. Okay, the bit about the brothers is tricky. That's, that's quite tricky. It's not quite clear who these brothers are. It could be, could be an image of the exiles returning home. It could be the fullness of believers throughout history coming to faith as brothers and sisters with Christ. Uh, that's, that's possible. That's what it's getting at there. Uh, 
could be the, the believers returning to earth after being gathered with Christ in the air at his second coming. Also a possible uh, way to look at that particular little phrase there. Uh, and it could be some combination of these, all layered together on top of one another uh, without a clear distinction between them. When we come to passages like this, where it's, it's difficult to sort through, uh, what we can do is we can look at it and say, in any case, Israel, God's people, will not remain abandoned. That's the, that's, the, the, that's the thing we can see for sure from that. Israel will not remain abandoned. Uh, the Lord has a plan to come for them, uh, and they are to take heart in that. We are to take heart in that. The people of God are to take heart in the fact that the abandonment will not persist. Uh, continue on from there, uh, and the focus remains on the Messiah, on Christ. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. So I, there's other translations uh, that attach the beginning of verse 5 to the previous sentence, uh, as I sort of read it out there. Um, the NIV doesn't, it splits those off from one another. Uh, but but there, are, there are quite a few other translations who will make the break in the stanzas after that, and he will be our peace. And they're, then they're starting a new sentence after that. Um, and and that, that seems pretty fitting. Uh, the section is, is partially fulfilled in, in the church, in Christ's message, uh, and people, and, and the kingdom stretching over the whole earth. He is indeed our peace. Uh, and we are the sheep of his hand. And he has continued to shepherd his flock through the ages. And still, still, this is waiting for its ultimate fulfillment. Uh, at our Lord's return, when we shall live fully secure, uh, and his reign will be universally acknowledged, as it's not at the moment. So we're looking at, again, a, a partially fulfilled, already and not yet type of thing uh, that's so common throughout scripture. Uh, so after that point, the focus shifts again. Mike, Mike is sort of looking at all these things going on, all these different periods of time at the same point, uh, and he shifts his focus uh, closer to Micah's own day, uh, when Assyria will invade. He says, When the, the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses, and other translations, again, continue this sentence here, uh, when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses, we will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, uh, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. Uh, and then it's, it seems to me like they kind of shift focus again here. Uh, the Messianic figure is, is given credit for the delivery from Assyria. And this, this likely refers uh, both to Hezekiah uh, and also pre prefigures Christ. Hezekiah is the third king that uh, Micah prophesied under. He, he's one of the best kings that Judah ever had, uh, a rare good king, and, and he did succeed in sort of dealing with the Assyrian threat. Uh, so, so he's probably in mind there, uh, and, but this also, also, one could also appropriately say that Christ is being credit with, credited with the victory in an ultimate sense, uh, while Hezekiah is 
credited with it in a finite, earthly sense. Um, and at the same time, Assyria, or the Assyrian, becomes a, a type, uh, a type which, while remaining a literal person and entity in Micah's own time, represents and prefigures all threats of destruction or conquering from which Christ, the Messiah, will deliver his people. Uh, two things are in view at the same time, again, layered on top of one another. So he will deliver us from the Assyrians. They will invade our land, or when they invade our land, and march across our borders. Okay, that's clearly connected to what we were just dealing with, but after that point where we're entering into another tricky piece, uh, likely layered again, we're going to be talking about the remnant uh, being, the remnant is, is sort of generally those faithful uh, who the Lord keeps throughout history. Uh, so here, in the passage we're about to get through, uh, that could mean either uh, the faithful in Micah's day, uh, who would be willing to stand and fight in the face of, of powerful Assyria because the Lord wants them to rely on him and not on their uh, alliances with Egypt or on the, the strength of their numbers of their warriors in battle. Uh, it could be referring to the faithful in exile. Uh, it, it could be referring to faithful Jews who uh, follow the teachings of Christ and accept him as the Messiah in the first century. Uh, it could be referring to the church throughout history. And again, it's likely that this shifts around a bit at different places, and this idea of remnant coming through is, is fulfilled at different points of time, and various pieces of it are, are taken up here and there, uh, and, and it could be applied in different ways to, to any of these, to all of these. So here we go. Let's read about the remnant. Uh, starting at verse 7, or continuing with verse 7. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. So that all is, is generally applicable to any, any of those sort of definitions or ideas of, of, of a remnant, what a remnant is. Uh, you know, Judah was surrounded by many nations uh, and regularly challenged them militarily, or regularly was challenged by them militarily and politically. Uh, the exiles, the early Christians who were Jews, uh, and the church generally have been scattered throughout the world, uh, and with God using this as a source of refreshment and hope, like dew or needed water for the people that they, that we, have been scattered amongst. Continuing with verse 8. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue from. Like this last bit there is a bit more difficult. <laughs> that was more difficult for me to deal with. Um, and I think it turns... It's, it's the bit that turns most clearly to Micah's immediate situation with a, with a declaration of victory against the oppressors who are trying to take the promised land uh, from them. And, and Micah flipping the script, similar to, to what he did at the end of chapter 4, uh, where, where he said, 
They, they thought that they were gathered here to conquer, but they will be like grain for you to thresh, daughter Zion. And now here he's saying they thought they came as the lion, but they are the sheep. God is with you and will make you like a lion among them. Um, that, that in conjunction with, with uh, how chapter 4 ended and, and Micah's imagery coming through to this point in the book uh, really lends itself to, to, to reading that way. Um, and, and also this would continue naturally into the next sentence. Uh, verse 9, your hand will be lifted in, up in triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed. Uh, I think that, that fits that fits neatly there. Uh, and then we have another shift, uh, and this one maybe to to a sort of ongoing day, a recurring day. The next section sort of harkens back to Deuteronomy 12, with God commanding Israel to do many of these things. They're they're talking about. When they were taking the promised land to destroy strongholds, to remove idols, and so on, uh, so that they will, would avoid falling into idolatry themselves in this new land that God had given them. And they did not do it. They did not do it. They didn't follow through with this. They went part way and they left the rest. That's a, a theme right throughout Israel's history. And with Ronza, that's a theme in, that has persisted through the church, too, where we tend to be a partway people. Uh, and maybe that's just part of being human, uh, is that we, we have trouble following through on things. In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you. I will demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down your strongholds. All your strongholds, even. I will destroy... <coughs> Sorry, got away from the mic there, that was good. I will destroy your witchcraft, and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles when I demolish your cities. I will take vengeance in anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. Now, who is God declaring this to? Who is that aimed at? To the nations who have not obeyed him. Uh, and to Israel. Uh, to Judah in particular. And God declares that he will, as he has throughout history, take steps to eradicate from within his people their idols and the ways in which they have turned away from him or refused to follow him in the first place. He does this for their good so that they can enter more fully into the goodness of all that he is offering them as their God and which they've already accepted as his people. This is a promise of faithfulness on God's part. To keep Israel as his people, to keep his covenant with Judah, and even to work to uphold their part of it from his end, where they have been unfaithful. Uh, if you've ever been close uh, with an addict, uh, you'll be familiar with the, the heartbreaking feelings that go into watching a person 
trapped in their own addiction, crumple. Uh, but people often have a hard time uh, understanding if they haven't experienced it, if they haven't been close to that. And part of the reason is that so often uh, this is so painful is, is that people can be very sincere about wanting to stop uh, with being done with their addiction and at the same time be be completely unable to let it go. That's a, that's a real dichotomy within people that is, is hard to deal with. And there can be times when folks will open up, uh, acknowledging that they can see what this is doing to them, uh, expressing dire need and desperation and, and hopelessness, even. And then go right back out and continue on with it. Times when, when this, this person that you love pleads with you for help, uh, to help them get out, uh, not intending to take advantage of you, not consciously, anyway. We people, all people, uh, tend to be very good at lying to ourselves. We are very good at convincing ourselves that things will be different, uh, that we're going to change. I, I really am going to start reading my Bible tomorrow. I really, I'm really going to start working out when the weather gets better. I'm, I'm, really, I'm really actually going to reach out to that person next week that relationship I've been neglecting a bit. I really, I promise I'm not gonna buy any more of that poison that's killing me. Oftentimes we really do, we really do want to follow through. We really do mean to do it. And we just, don't. Quite. Why is that? That thing which I, I do, I do not want to do. And that which I do not want to do, that is what I end up doing. Paul is familiar with this, clearly. Sin. Sin grabs such a hold of us. Its, its tendrils wrap and squeeze and burrow into us. Tiny little things so hard to get them all out. To cut them out, to eradicate these things which eat into our humanity. Make us less than what we are. So God gives this, this warning that he will take vengeance and action on the nations who have disobeyed him. And Israel, Israel was meant to be a beacon of hope, showing the nations around them that God is good, teaching them to follow him. Instead, 
They disobey him and followed the path of the other nations around them instead. It's the opposite of the way it was supposed to work. So this warning was both for them to get back to what they were supposed to be doing and helping the nations around them and for them to be aware that their continued rebellion would lead to their own demise along with the other nations. It throws into perspective this, this idea about God removing from them, even destroying their avenues towards idolatry, their, their means and ability to access these idols, which would otherwise result in God's vengeance coming down on them. God, by destroying their machines of war and their cities and taking their witchcraft and their idols and by sending them into exile, is preserving them. He's saving them from, from continuing to rot within themselves and bringing them to a place where, where they can see that they must trust him. Where they realize he is their only option if they are to survive. Which, which he already was. That's not a change. But they couldn't see it. Kept turning to these other things, trusting in these other things and themselves. And it's the same for us today. We need God if we have any hope to survive. We need Him desperately. It's why we call Jesus our blessed hope. Our hope hangs on Him, it depends on Him. We are counting on Him, on His return. That when He comes, that when He judges, that the redemptive work of the cross and the resurrection will hold. That he will not leave us forever. That he is working even now. That the Holy Spirit really is alive and within us who believe, who have put our trust in him. And we trust that God will do for us today what he did for Israel in that day. That he will remove from us anything that cannot stay. That he will burn away all that would destroy us otherwise, leaving us pure and holy. And that he has begun to do this within us even now. That's the process of sanctification. That the Holy Spirit, being God, is so holy and perfect and pure that we cannot taint that Spirit. But that we will be led by the Spirit to lay down more of these things, being made whole, being transformed by the renewing of our minds. There's Paul in Romans again. That's our hope. God would do it for them, he will do it for us now.
We're going to step into some discussion together uh, with the people at your table. The, the questions are, are, are jumping off points for discussion. They're not, they're not the main focus, is the, is the questions themselves. Um, finding the right answer to the question really isn't the point so much as, as talking these things through together at our tables. Um, the discussion is meant to stay here, stay at the table. Uh, if you want, you can, you can give permission for, for one another to check in with you about these things later, but otherwise, you know, try to let everyone have a chance to speak. If they want to, to remember to be kind with one another, pray for one another, uh, and, and listen, trying to understand. Um, yeah, that's what, that's what we're going to do here. Um, so I'm, I'm going to read through these questions. Um, normally I join a table, but I'm not going to do that. Put my mask back on and go hide in the corner. Um, so here we go. These are the questions. Where in this chapter do you see the theme of redemption coming through? Where is redemption coming through in this? Second question. What do you think about the overlapping images of pain and saving, or of salvation, of God's redemption in us, or of us, in this chapter? There's, there's both. There's both in there. Here's the last one. What in your own life do you need God to cut out or destroy or take away from you? That one's harder, but uh, it's worth thinking through together and, and praying with one another over. So there we go. Uh, spend some time discussing that. As prayer wraps up, we're going to get ready to move upstairs together. to step into worship uh, and communion up there. So if, if, you're, if you're a believer in Christ, if you've given your life over to him, uh, please join us for communion. Don't want you to miss that. Uh, if, you're, if you're not there yet, if, uh, if that's not a, a step you've, you've taken, then uh, you're welcome. Please come join us for worship um, and, and you're, you're invited to observe communion as it happens and uh, as we take communion I want to invite everyone to these things we've been talking about these uh, these things we all have in our lives that need to be refined uh, cut out, burned away however you want to say that uh, the sin we have the, the parts of ourselves we haven't yet uh, turned over to Christ or need to turn over to him again take take that opportunity during communion to do that to, to make yourself fully his again and again and again and again and we'll continue doing that together uh, and encouraging one another towards that uh, it's a big part of the reason we meet together it's a big part of the reason we take communion together is to, to do that to help one another do that so Please, uh, if you have dishes, you, you can leave them. Uh, if there's a, a couple here or there, uh, they can go in the, the bins just around the corner there. Uh, and, and the excess food waste can go in the trash can there. And uh, we'll head upstairs, uh, just straight through these doors, around and up. And we'll enter the sanctuary and worship together.